What's up, everyone? Chris Cage here, founder of Greenbelly Meals. Today, I'm chatting with Mr. Carl Meltzer, aka Speedgoat. Carl is considered one of the most accomplished ultra runners in the world, having won more 100 mile races than anyone else. He also held the Appalachian Trail's fastest known time record in 2016 for completing the 2,190 mile long trail in 45 days and 22 hours. That's almost 50 miles a day. Not to mention he did it in his late 40s, which is absolutely insane to me. There's a great documentary by Red Bull about Carl's record-breaking run called Made to be Broken. Look it up. It's free. I highly recommend it. He is also the race director for the Speedgoat 50K near Salt Lake City. Today, we're going to talk about Carl's story from a self-proclaimed bartending ski bum to the world-famous ultra runner what it took to break an insane record like he did, as well as what he is up to now. Let's dive in. What's up, Carl? Thanks for hopping on. Hey, Chris. Good, good to hear you. Kind of hanging out, waiting for winter to be over so we can get back to some regular trails to run on. Where are you now? I live in Sandy, Utah. Near I'm right in front of the Wasatch Mountains near Snowbird and Alta skiers. And that's where I started my ski bumming at Snowbird. That lasted for about 17 years. And then, uh, you know, running running just kind of transitioned into that after that. Nice. Well, I don't think you... We've emailed back and forth for many years. Uh-huh. You were honestly one of the first people to ever taste Greenbelly. I think... I don't even know if you remember. I sent you samples yeah. way back when. And I had... Those were handmade in my mom's <laughs> kitchen. So I was... Nice. Um, yeah, it's cool to finally talk to you, but thanks for the... No, they're great. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's good to have that kind of stuff. It's a little different than, than when we were kids. I mean, I'm 53 now. So when I say kids, that means like early 80s, <laughs> even late 70s, stuff like that wasn't out there. Yeah. And it's cool to see products like that. And, you know, Greenbelly's done a good job with it. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Well, it's cool to finally talk to you. But so I'd like to start off a little bit on your background and talk a little bit about ultras. Some of your your actual fastest known time. Really want to dig into that, and then we can talk a little about what you're doing now. But to, to start off for the listeners, it looks like you grew up spending time in the outdoors in New Hampshire. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, New Hampshire. I lived in a little town called Auburn, right? Just basically Manchester, New Hampshire, southern central New Hampshire. And often, I mean, it was you know again back in those days, there was no internet, there was no phones. As kids, we grew up baseball in the street, running around the woods, you know, stuff like that. And I often skied during the winters, obviously. My dad brought me skiing like every weekend. It wasn't always Saturday and Sunday, but it was always at least one of those two days. So that's where the background of skiing came from. I learned how to ski when I was three years old. Wow. Yeah. I was born in Philadelphia, but when I was three, three or four, my parents moved to New Hampshire. But I learned to ski at Big Boulder Skier in Pennsylvania, which is... You know, 600 vertical feet. My dad was a patroller there. So I had a background skiing. And by the time I was, you know, seven or eight, I was skiing anything, any kind of runs that I really wanted to. You know, not the biggest, steepest couloirs of the West, but, you know, expert runs on the East Coast. So I was able to, my dad was able to actually have fun skiing too, instead of just teaching me, so to speak. He would just say, follow me. And that's what I did. And, you know, it kind of comes true in life. I sort of followed his lead a lot. And that's kind of how I grew up. I just I did a lot of stuff in the woods. And I didn't do a ton of hiking when I was younger. When I was in grade school, I'd run a race called Mount Washington Road Race, which is most people are pretty familiar with that run. It's a hill climb, but it's on a road. We always ran on the roads. 
trail running really wasn't uh, what we did much of like on a regular basis, but it's kind of fun. The West and they started trail running, like just like engaged <laughs> doing it. And, you know, I loved it. But uh, growing up in New Hampshire was great. I mean, it's a great place to grow up. I don't think I'd move back there now, but well, it's different. You know, it's like a whole different world now. It's more people everywhere. And I'm ready to move away from Salt Lake at this point pretty soon, but it was great to grow up. I had a great childhood. It was I had good friends that lived next door and stuff like that. So it was a good time. So you had a skiing background. When and why did you make the move to Utah? Was it purely for skiing? Yeah, I moved to Utah to ski. The initial plan was to go to Big Sky, Montana. A friend of mine suggested that when I was at Plum State College for that one brief year that I spent there. And I was, you know, I didn't really want to be in, I was in college, but I didn't really want to be there. So <laughs> guy that kind of does and goes and does things that he wants to. So my buddy suggested Big Sky. I ended up going to Jackson, which didn't really pan out. Great mountain, great town. But it was at the time, the $600 a month rent for the two bedroom house was a little too much for us in downtown Jackson Hole. And that would probably rent for $6,000 a month now. Yeah, I think it's pretty pricey there now. Oh, it's crazy now, but you know, this is a sign of the times. Jackson didn't really pan out because of that was one of the reasons. And they also didn't open the ski area until they have a four month permit in Jackson where they can't open until like it's like early December and they close like early April, four month window. We, that was kind of discouraged us. And my buddy had been to Snowbird and Alta before when he was a kid. His parents brought him out here and he's like, you know, let's drive down to Salt Lake and Check out Snowbird Nauta. And I was like, all right, 500 inches a year. I can live with that. Uh, as an average, that's a lot of snow. That's one of the biggest snowfalls in the country for any ski areas. So we moved to Salt Lake. We got here. It totally dumped when we got here. This was like October 26th, I think was the date. So pretty early in the season. It was dumping with Snowbird. And they got about 25, 30 inches in about two days. There was a job fair on a Saturday morning. I think it was a Saturday morning. And we had been in Utah, like I said, like two or three days. And we went to that job fair. And after being in Utah for less than, we'll say less than three days, I had a job at Snowbird Busting Tables, working from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. or 4 to 10, really, which is optimum hours, of course, if you want to ski. In the day. You know, I mean, perfect, right? And Busting Tables is, you know, it's just picking up the dishes and putting them in the back. <laughs> That's all we wanted. And, you know, we made a little money doing it. It wasn't so bad because it was always busy. And, you know, you rented a house with your, or a house or an apartment with your buddies. And um, we skied every day. Like we skied 100, you know, 100 days a year for multiple years in a row. I only bust tables one year. I ended up bartending, turning into the bartender at that same restaurant for the next 16 years, um, which of course was a little bit better of a job. But, you know, you're not retiring on a bartender salary. <laughs> so you know, it was great while it lasted. I made a lot of great friends. And uh, it really changed my life moving out here. It just changed my whole focus on, you know, what I really wanted to do. I really didn't know what I wanted to do other than go skiing. And for multiple years, it was really focused mostly on skiing. But as summer came around, even the first year when summer came around, everyone said I should buy a mountain bike. So I did. And I, and I, I saved it that whopping 500 bucks and bought a mountain bike. And uh, But, you know, I didn't really love mountain biking. I mean, I liked it. It was fun. But... I really, once I started running with a friend, I really enjoyed the running more. That's sort of how I transitioned into, well, that's when I started running in the mountains anyway. How old were you when you started running? So I was, I mean, I ran in high school. So I was 10 or 11 when I started running. But in Utah, once I was out of high school, I didn't run for a couple of years. I just kind of, I was just a bum. and I lived at home. The first year after high school, I didn't go to college right away. I worked, I lived at home, I lived with friends. 
didn't do the best things to my body. And, you know, just <laughs> I can lie to you. And then uh, the opportunity to move west happened. And then I started running just like mostly just because I loved it was the first summer being in Utah. And then I just started running in some races. The first race was a hill climb up Snowbird called the Rowdy Run, which is about a four and a half mile climb, 3,000 vertical. And I won it. Nice. Like three weeks of training, right? So that's sort of like, you know, well, this is kind of cool. So I ran other shorter races, just shorter trail races. They weren't road races. I actually did run a few road races, but I was really like the trail more often. So I did that and it just sort of graduated into, you know, every year it was like, what are the best races around that we can drive to? And, you know, Colorado was not that far by, far away. So Pikes Peak Ascent was the first kind of big deal. And I ran the Ascent the first two years. Never thought I would run the marathon because why would you want to run downhill 8,000 vertical feet as fast as you can? Well, that, you know, it took one year to realize that that was actually pretty fun, kind of painful. Just on your knees? Uh, yeah, well, on your whole body. <laughs> After you run up the thing, you know, it's like you're, you turn around and you're tired. But what a great race. It's uh, Pikes Peak Marathon and Ascent races are really, they're old classics. And uh, I would recommend that race to anybody. It's awesome. And so that sort of started my just kind of competitively running. The first year I ran there, I think I came in 15th place or something like that. So that was, you know, it was pretty good effort out of 800 people. And, you know, go a little fast forward where I worked, a place called the Keyhole at Snowbird. One of my coworkers, Meg Gates, Meg Ryan, actually, at the time, her boyfriend or now husband, Rick Gates, um, had run the Wasatch 100 before. And he was like, hey, you should run Wasatch one year. And I was like, why would I want to run 100 miles? That is like stupid. But just, you know, it was just foreign to me. Right. But, you know, she sort of kind of talked me into it. I talked to Rick and, you know, I entered like a month before the race. I mean, unlike it is now these days, but I entered like a month before the race and I stuck those six hard power bars in my little waist pack and went to the start line. <laughs> and, you know, I went in, mostly went in blind. I mean, I asked Rick for a little bit of advice, but I'm the kind of guy that likes to learn things the hard way for some reason. So I did it. I finished the race. I was leading the race at mile 40. You know, I had speed, but I didn't really have the endurance. Your first 100-mile race, you're leading it at 40. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, wheels came off pretty soon thereafter. But at the same time, you know, you don't run that fast and you run 100. I don't care if you're running, you're winning Western States. The leader still isn't running at his full capacity, like you're running a 10K or 5K or something. So your ability to move at a reasonably, what feels like a slow clip, isn't really that, wasn't that hard for me then. But I didn't know what salt was for. I didn't really know how to gauge my fueling. I didn't know electrolytes. I didn't know anything. I just kind of like was eating whatever I kind of felt like eating. Then I wasn't eating much at all. But I held it together. I was focused. I wanted to finish. I got lost for an hour and a half at mile 93. Hmm. It was incredibly discouraging. <laughs> but I sucked it up and I got to the end in 28 hours and 26 minutes. Came in 28th place. I think like 300 started or something. Oh. I said I'd never do it again, but three days later, I was like, where do you sign up? That was the very beginning of me running an ultra. And that was my first ultra. And yeah, I've most pretty much been hooked ever since. And, you know, and the rest is kind of history. It's here we are 24 years later. Yeah. Still talking about it. So there's a little bit of an overlap between hiking and ultra running, but I don't think for the hiker listeners, they're not super familiar with ultra running. So what do you consider to be an ultra? Well, no, technically, they say anything longer than a marathon, which, you know, that would be the truth. 26.1 miles, right? Yeah. So marathon's 26.2. 2. You know, they'll call the, the quad dipsy 
There's a race in uh, Marin County called the Quad in California called the Quad Dipsy, and it's 28 miles. So they'll call that an ultra marathon. But, you know, technically longer than 26, it's an ultra. But for me, I really think the signature distance is 100 miles, at least in this country. 100K might be the signature distance in Europe. It's a little different in Europe, but, you know, their Ks were miles. But I like a race that has a, an ultra marathon to, it has to work you mentally too. It's not just like go hard and hang on till the end. And, you know, nowadays, guys that are really fast, the Wamsleys, the Reagans, the, the guys that are running really, really fast times, it has been go hard and hang on till the end, even in the high sometimes now. I like the race to have some strategy and some efficiency factors to win. I mean, I was not the fastest runner at the No Business 100, but I won the race, you know? Some mental leverage. Came in Barnett. He stopped at the aid station for five minutes every time. I filled my water and it kept going. And then I beat him by 52 minutes. And the difference was probably the aid station time. Mm. So I could be strategy involved as well as physical ability, you know? So textbook, anything above a marathon, but we're probably going to say more like 100 miles. So maybe... Yeah, well, that's that's me. I mean, other people will disagree and say, you know, 50 miles is good. Sure. And that is, but sure. I just... Longer stuff. So catering to the hiker audience, we're familiar with what might be called the big three trails in the US, the AT, Appalachian Trail, PCT, and CDT. Can you familiarize us with ultra runs? Is there a similar big three or is it much more fragmented? Are there just hundreds of big boys out there? I mean, there's definitely most popular races. I mean, Western States 100, the first 100 in US, that's the uh, US nowadays, that's the most competitive race. So that's the one most people kind of are drawn to. Of course, it's difficult to get in. You can They only get in just under 400 people. But now the really big race is UTMB in France in Chamonix. We run around Mont Blanc. Oh, and yeah. That is amazing. I mean, it's incredible. That is the Tour de France of ultra running where you know most of us who listen to this have probably watched the Tour de France to some degree. And you know everybody's on the side of the road. Lay, 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 lay. And that's what you see at, at Mont Blanc. You see every town you go through, there's a thousand people yelling and screaming at you. Very cool. Yeah, it is cool. That's the biggest one now. Western States was the biggest one before UTMB. And then Hard Rock, I sort of put Hard Rock on the map a little bit when I ran that 2639 we talked about earlier. Yeah. But Hard Rock only allows 145 runners. So they're never going to get this massive elite field, which is okay. That's their story. But those three, in my opinion, are three the three biggest ones. But as trail running and, and ultra running has grown exponentially, there are a lot, a lot of races. When I started running hundreds, there was 25 in the, in the US. Now there's about 300. You know, you can pick and choose every weekend. The guy that ran one every weekend last year, Walter Handelosver, he ran one every weekend. Wow. I mean, that's an ultra in its own right. But like I said, it's kind of saturated now. But the biggest one is UTMB, Western States. And then in Europe, I know there's other ones that are bigger too. I just don't know all the names of them. No, that's great. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Yeah, those are the big three. It just mm-hmm. catches up to speed a little bit. So from skiing to running, it sounds like there was you were doing both simultaneously for a while. Skiing slash bartending and running, right? Yeah, I was skiing. I mean, I was still skiing a, a fair bit until about 2000, maybe one or two. When ultra running, I was first sponsored by Montreal. That was a big thing to get sponsorships, you know? Exactly. So I was going to say, when did things start to change as far as your career? When did you start to identify as a runner? Was it purely to do with your source of income? Well, number one made money sponsored in the 90s. Okay. So 
definitely wasn't income. Was I hope get a couple pairs of shoes, you know? Call that income if you want. But things have changed now. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But at that time, so 96 was the first loss at 100, 28th place, 97, I came in seventh. So I was close. I was actually close to the leader, but then I sort of fell off with an IT band problem at the end. And then I won in 98 and broke the record, which of course has been broken now a number of times. But that was a big deal when I broke the record. And that's when the president of Montreal, Scott Tucker, called me. And I was like, who's this guy? And he's like, you know, we'd like you to run for Montreal. And I was like, all right. I didn't really know what to think. I'm like, he said, well, Ian Torrance is going to call you. And I was excited to see Ian Torrance calling me because I had been following Ian a little bit and he had been killing everybody at that time. So I was excited, you know, and I talked to Ian and they could offer me, I don't think there was a number of shoes per year I could get, but it was like shoes when needed. And that was it. And, you know, they'll, they'll give you a shirt, whatever, and that kind of stuff. So <laughs> nobody was making any money. But that's sort of when it very much started. That was my very first sponsor. Before I ran Ultras, I was kind of sending out letters. I sent a letter to Nike. But, you know, those companies, they see a guy that, you know, I mean, it's, you're not running marathons in 207. So <laughs> they weren't sponsoring any mountain runner kid from Utah. The free Montreal gear was the first. Yeah, it was big. And then it was a big step when I got paid $500 a year. Wow. No. That's five bucks a week, right? Well, whatever the hell that is. <laughs> it is ten bucks a week. <laughs> you know, and then it was like a thousand dollars a year. But that I mean, that is minimal, you know. That's like, you know, living on that. Right. I saved my quarters and, and my dollars all winter when I bartended. I was able to save probably seven or eight thousand dollars every winter, which again isn't a lot of money, but when you're living with friends, your bills aren't that aren't that high, that kind of thing. That seven or eight thousand dollars that you saved can go pretty far over the course of the summer. So I worked a little in the summer bartending when they were busy. There's two shoulder seasons. You got spring and fall when it wasn't busy at all. Summer was kind of busy. But uh, you know, I didn't work a ton. I just I wanted to run. So we camped in our cars and went to some races and did that kind of stuff. But you know, the first time when more real sponsorship came along was in 2001 when I managed to win the Hard Rock 100. And I ran 26.39. And that time, of course, I think that's the ninth fastest. Oh, well, actually, no, that's probably 30th fastest time now. But when I went, ran that time, I broke the record by three hours. Got some attention for that? Oh, uh, just a little. No one's going to run that time again. That's impossible. How did he do that? You know, blah, blah, blah. At that, that year, Sports Illustrated and National Geographic were doing a small film on the race. The timing was really good on that. And that's when I got it hooked up with Red Bull in 2001, which was also a random random thing. Uh, I'll get to, you know more of this. My life has been very random. I've, a lot of things have fallen into my lap and this was one of them. I was bartending at Snowbird and the two girls that drive the Wings vehicle that kind of hand out the free Red Bulls. Yeah. Seen them yeah. You know, right? The Wings team is what they call them. They were sitting at the bar, I had a drink. I was defizzing a Red Bull in uh, behind the bar because I was running a race a couple of days later called the Crown King 50K in Arizona. And I wanted to put that Red Bull in a water bottle yeah. Without it, you know, the yeah. So they're like, "What are you doing with those?" I was like, "Well, I'm just defizzing this. I'm running, I'm running a 50k." And so we just started chatting a little bit, and this had been after, of course, that I won Wasatch and, and had the record. And we chatted about it a little more, and they were like, "You need to talk to this guy, Mike." And so they set me up with an appointment with Mike Romerol, who was a field marketing manager here in Salt Lake for Red Bull. I went and chatted with him. He loved it. He went and hooked me up with this girl named Amy Coke. And read it when Amy Koch, I talked to her, that was just after an article in Sports Illustrated came out on me about hard rock. So I brought that in and said, hey, look at this, you know? So they're like, oh, Sports Illustrated. And at the time, of course, that was big, you know? 
So that sponsorship with Red Bull came along, and even they didn't really pay me any money, but they paid for some travel money. I just had to send them an invoice, yeah. and they took care of it, which helped. But then finally, a few years later, they, you know, I got on with a, a small salary with them, and you know, things slowly escalated with a little more money from Montreal, a couple other, you know, sponsors throwing a thousand here and a thousand there. I still wasn't making much money, but I still mm-hmm. was making something, and it felt good. You know, the times have changed. You know, Montreal most they, most Montreal ever paid me was five thousand dollars. Well, Mosportiva when I left Montreal paid me seven. So those are pretty small numbers, you know. Even though they're good, they're small. So that's sort of how it started, and then you know I kept winning a lot of hundreds and winning and winning and winning. And I, after I won that Hard Rock one hundred in two thousand one, I mean I had a great race, right? And I was like, man, I really like the 100 mile distance. I'm going to focus on trying to win hundreds. So that's when my focus changed, not changed, but focused towards the 100 mile distance and how many of these things can I win. And I started running a lot of them every year and winning most of them. So, you know, that number escalated. I won eight, I won 10, then I won 12 and 14. Then I started looking at to see who had the most wins. And that was Ann Trayson. And ironically, Ann, when I won Wasatch in 98, that was Ann Trayson's sixth 100 mile win that year. At that time, Ann Trayson, of course, super legend, right? So it's it's kind of came together, and then my focus just became running. You know, I don't ski. I didn't ski much in the mid two thousands, a little bit, but I mostly didn't want to get hurt because I see a lot of friends get hurt. I've seen many friends, unfortunately, pass away because of avalanches or injuries or whatever. And uh, I wanted to stay away with that and wanted to focus more on running. So then, when I left Snowboard in two thousand seven, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, but. <laughs> That's the next chapter of the story. Got it. So, so by 2007, you were identifying full on as a runner. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not like I didn't have a job. I still did. When I left Snowbird, I did some odd jobs for, and I'm kind of a handyman, so I've done some stuff, painting, you know, pile work, stuff like that. Did some random stuff like that. But in 2008, a couple of guys that I worked not at the same restaurant, but very close to the Cliff Lodge at Snowbird. A couple of guys worked up in room service and they started a business called backcountry.com, which you may have heard of before. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, right? I think I heard of it. Okay. So John Brzee, rest in peace, John. Another guy, I can't forget his name now, but he didn't work at Snowbird. Another guy, they started backcountry.com. Wow. Yeah. And they worked in room service just above me. I ski with those guys hundreds of days. I ski with them all the time. They're good friends. And they started their business out of their little shed in Heber. But they weren't, once their business all of a sudden grew, and it grew very quickly, those guys all of a sudden were like, boom, you know? They started a, a, an athlete team. Uh, it wasn't mostly runners, it was mostly skiers, snowboarders, some mountain bikers. But I knew those guys, and they're like, hey, Carl, you should join our team. And I was like, done, you know? This is backcountry.com team? Yeah, yeah. And they Interesting. Said, yeah, and they said, you know, well, what do you, you want to do? Is there any projects you want to do or anything? Like, I'm like, well, I got an idea. How about we get a website called where'scarl.com? I go run the AT. You guys can blog on it, you can give a prize out or something, and you know, people can track me doing it. Like, wouldn't that be cool? Hey, Chris here. Just wanted to interject for a second and clarify a few things. Carl and I are about to talk about Carl's first Appalachian Trail fastest known time attempt in 2008, then his attempt in 2014, and finally his 2016 victory. We refer to the Appalachian Trail as the AT and fastest known time as FKT. Now in 2008, I mean, there wasn't the same tracking devices that we have now, you know? Right. Technology was a little different back then. It's a little bit better now. <laughs> the spot device is what we used. You know, we kind of had these meetings and we kind of had 
whip it up together. And they were like, well, how much do you think this is going to cost, Carl, to do this? And I said, I mean, I really had no idea, but I'm like 30 grand because you had to rent the RV. You had to, you know, you had to take care of all the expenses and the gas and all these things. And, and so I gave him this figure of 30 grand and I was totally guessing out of my ass. <laughs> but, you know, they were like, okay, what, like, let's do it. And I was just like, I was blown away that they even wanted to do it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I've been on some in New Hampshire and Franconia Notch and, you know, Mount Washington and some places, never been in Maine, some in Vermont, but all of a sudden they were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's have a meeting next week up at the, the office, which was in Park City. And I live in Sandy, like 20 minutes away. So we went up and had that meeting and they were like, it's a go. So I sort of like, I had to get the maps and start looking and start doing all this research. So I'm like, well, what are you going to do every day? Where are you going to stop? And I, you know, I was owning kind of blind, you know, very blind, really. And, but we put it together and, you know, we made it happen. There were tons of mistakes made. The RV, one of them. When you say, when you say you made this happen, you, you're saying you went for a 2018 fastest in time attempt on 2008. Right, 2008. Right. Yeah, yeah, 2008. So, you know, I went for I'm, the guy that held the record at the time. His name was Andrew Thompson, another familiar name in you know big trails. Trail dog Andrew Thompson. He's from New Hampshire too. Um, I, he was the guy I was chasing. I never contacted him before I did it, which I should have. I should have contacted a few other people that knew the trail much better than I certainly did, but I didn't. Again, I learned the hard way, right? So we went to Maine. My dad was there. Merritt Fisher, who was uh, with Backcountry.com, and one, and those two were the starting crew. And so we had maps of Maine, which Maine is complicated if you don't really know it and what the deal was and stuff. And man, they made mistakes. They missed me. They didn't have food for me. But I sort of got my miles done when I got into New Hampshire and even into Vermont. I was still sort of on pace, which is amazing that I held together. I had feet issues on day one. There was more water in, in Maine in that season than they had. They had more water in like one week than all of like Maine's season. Mm. Some rivers that were like belly button to chest deep when they should have been ankle deep. And if you're familiar, you're probably, I know you're familiar with the AT. So big rivers of Kennebec, when I crossed the Kennebec, we certainly took the canoe, but it was six feet above flood stage. Yikes. Yeah. And so like, I don't know if you've been there to that spot or not where the canoe is, but Definitely. You have been there, right? So there's a big bank there and the water was right at the very top of that bank. Oh. And it was flowing. <laughs> the, the guy, the, the ferryman, big classic Maine guy, he's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll do it. And a guy named Matt Hart was actually running the entire section of Maine with me. So we jumped, we got in the canoe. He got us across and he had to wait on the other side for two through hikers to come through so he could paddle back. He wasn't paddling back until he got people. So that was just an idea what the water was like. It was off the chart. Those rivers were dangerous. Absolutely. But we did it and we got into you know, Vermont. And by the time I got to Route 11, though, near Manchester, uh, my shins were just a wreck, mostly my right one, but it was a wreck and I wasn't able to keep moving. So I had to take days off to, they're like, do you want to keep going? Do you want to go home? And I'm like, oh, if you guys are covering the expenses, I'll keep going. <laughs> Four days. <laughs> they were like, "Yeah, we want to support you." You know, it was it was John Breezy, and my, you know. So, despite taking days off, you felt like you still had a chance at breaking the record. No, I knew the record was probably out the door. Okay, you were just thinking about continuing going for the sake of going. Yeah, I mean, who gets to do that stuff, right? Right, and if somebody's paying the bill. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go. So I went, and you know, I actually, I still put in big days. I still did it in 54 days. I had a lot of bad days ahead of me. Holy cow. Okay. So you still did a really solid attempt in 2008. 
Yeah, I had three days off completely. One day of 17, a day of nine, a day of 19. I mean, there was multiple times when I lost a ton, a ton segment of my life. But I still did it and I completed it. And I went and, you know, some people should say it was successful, but I was, I'd still deem that a success. That's extremely successful. What Was that your first, I guess you'd say, through hike? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was my first ever, call it a multi-day run, you know, um, or hike or whatever you want to call it. It was an amazing experience. I mean, my dad was there the whole time or most of the time. You know, it was rough at times with the crew. I mean, we got in arguments. We went through all that process. But I did it and I said, well, okay, I completed the AT. Now I better get back to racing because I am I think I was 38 years old. I, was, I think I was 40 actually when I did that time. And I was like, I better keep racing because I want to still stay relevant in the racing world. You know, So I sort of put that finish on the back burner and started racing hundreds again a lot. and. You know, I kept winning hundreds. Then I passed Dan Trayson as 22. And then, you know, Red Bull asked me, what's your goal now? I said, to win 35 times at 100 miles. I'm like, wow, do you think you can get that? I'm like, well, I don't know. I said, only time will tell. And then I got to 35. And I got to 40. And right now I'm sitting at 45. And <laughs> I know, it, I mean, it blows my mind. Still, I'm crazy. Backcountry was, they supported me. 100%. And then, you know, the further attempts, as I went through a bunch of years of racing those hundreds, I said, man, I really want to go back to the AT again, but I don't want all the hoopla. I don't want to have to like report every day what I did and stuff. I just want to go do it. So I hired my own crew. I paid my couple of my buddies to do it in 2014. One of the guys wanted to control everyone. They didn't get along well. It just didn't go well. I wasn't in that great a sheep either, but at the same time, the crew wasn't working very well. So I ended up bailing at Fairwall Gap, which is about mile 1,500 or so. Ooh. And I with the tail between my legs and said, I'm never going back to that trail again. And then Red Bull comes back to me and says, hey, you want to go back in 2015? <laughs> and I said, no effing way am I going back. You know? right. But you know, a couple months went past later. I said, hey, well, hey, what about if I go back in 2016, but you help me do some more recons, some more research, but more like just doing recon for the crew. So what I did in 2015, I still raced my normal stuff, but I went to the AT and I drove the AT from Maine all the way to Georgia and stopped at every road crossing, put it on paper maps, wrote down notes of like stores, camping okay or not, you know, things like that. Did a lot of that research. Uh, Red Bull covered me on that. All that it was expensive to do that. That's serious trail beta. Oh yeah. So I was really, I, now I was familiar. My crew would say, hey, you know, we're in Virginia on some dirt road. They're like, well, hey, what's wrong? I'm like, well, there's a, you can't camp right here, but there's a campsite right down the road. I would know that, you know, or it would be on our maps. So this is 2015 ish. You're saying to yourself, I'm going to take this year and check out the logistics. So where it makes sense for us to park our van mm-hmm. for when I do do this next year? Yeah. I mean, it was all about the following year. So the following year, we did all that. I even did Maine. I even did Summit of Katahdin to Grafton Notch, which was six days. So I basically did a rehearse of that section with my crew. And I did it in six days. But I wanted to get through Maine and get to Grafton Notch, not at you know midnight. So I have to go through the Mahoosics the next day, tired. Yeah. I wanted to get to Grafton Notch early enough where I could get really good sleep before the Mahoosics and Mount Washington coming forward and stuff. So I, I had a plan. I went all the way to Joe Mary Road the first day, which was 60 plus the, your sense of 64 miles or so, or whatever it was, 60, I don't know. But it was a better place to get to the first day as opposed to 16 miles behind. Hmm. The thing 
sleep in a vehicle. It's like you're, you're subject to the vehicle, right? So that doesn't make it more efficient. Sometimes it makes it more of a, a pain. But at any rate, I rehearsed that whole section through Maine. I did it by myself without someone going with me all alone. I had the crew, obviously, but all alone on the trail. And it was awesome. I did great. And I'm like, okay, Maine is a piece of cake. And, <laughs> and <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that. Right. Well, I mean, now that I sort of did it myself, I was kind of, the confidence was all there. So when I went back in 2016, I was like, you know, I know right where those guys are going to walk into the trail. They were all with me last year. They know where to go. They're not going to get lost. They're not going to forget anything. And Eric Bells and my dad and uh, the film crew guys, they nailed it. You know, it was to graph the notch. It was like 6.45 in the evening. It wasn't even dark yet. So I like went to bed and I had a full eight or nine hours of sleep before the Mahusics. And I ran through the Mahusics to uh, Borum, which is only 31 miles, but that was all I wanted to do. So I got there early. And then the next day I went over Wildcat Ridge, over Mount Washington, all the way to Crawford Notch in one push. And that accelerated me for way further ahead of what I called virtual Gen Far, whose record I was chasing southbound at that time. Right. So my next day wasn't that great, but I was still ahead of her. So I sort of had like, I had virtual Jen's numbers on a spreadsheet, you know, so I knew right where she was. Was she the record holder just prior to you? No. Well, Jurek had it. Jurek got it in 2015. Jurek was 15. Okay. Right. And I helped Scott, but that's another story. But I knew Jen went southbound. Scott went north. So you couldn't... Yeah, you didn't have a good benchmark there. No, not at all. So Jen was the person to follow. So I followed her at times. And by the time I got to Arden Valley Road, day 18, I was a full day ahead of virtual Jen. So I was doing great. I was like right on target. Everything was going great. And then like on the flattest section of grass in New Jersey, <laughs> one of my shins just, it just felt like the guitar string snapped. And all of a sudden my shins were a wreck. And then I had to, then I was going into Pennsylvania and you know, Pennsylvania, a rock, rocky, every time you stub your damn toe, by the time I get to Duncannon, then I was eight miles behind virtual gen. So then I had to make the time up again, but then my shins miraculously pain went away. Yeah. I think I saw that in the documentary. So I, yeah. you know, one big question I had around all of this is your pacing. So, you know, like when you think about the trail, you'd say, okay, the trail is 2,200 miles and I want to do it in 45 days. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm going to do 48 miles every day. However, with the constantly evolving terrain, I, that's just not going to work. So I was wondering, how did you plan your pace around that to make sure you hit your goal? And it sounds like your virtual Jennifer Farr Davis is. What you were, you had some numbers there yeah. to say this specific section, Jen did it in this many miles in this section. So that was your benchmark constantly. Yeah, it was, it was kind of, she was my benchmark for sure. How fast I was moving on the trail just was a matter of how I felt. What was kind of funny is that, you know, in this day and age, everyone's got their Garmin 9000, you know, basically runs for you. I had a Casio, my watch. Okay. I didn't have... It wasn't telling me how many miles I went. It wasn't telling me any of that stuff. I just had my Casio on. And if I had 7.4 miles to go to the next road crossing... Because we had, we knew every road crossing, right? So we knew how far everything was. I could tell them, I'll be there in an hour and 42 minutes or whatever it was. And I would show up in an hour and 42 minutes. And it was amazing how... I mean, once you get on the trail like that, you've got your trail legs. Your pace is what it is. It's always kind of the same. As long as you don't go through like a nutrition bonk or something like that. You know, we just every day it was you can have mileages that you plan to go to on a map like before you even start the AT. But the bottom line is, is you know as well as anyone that once you lose one day or one spot, it all changes. Everything derails. Everything derails. So 
But my crew had that, you know, we had those books and stuff and we would just say, okay, the next day we got to go to here. And I would get to there. I always started at 5 a.m. or better. Usually it was between 50 and 5. I never, I think I only left after 5 a.m. like once. That was always a big goal is to get out early and try to finish by my leg by dark. It was rare that I went into darkness at night, which was great because I slept eight hours a night, seven hours a night. Sounds crucial for recovery. Totally. Jurek didn't do that. Jurek was like, he didn't sleep at all. I don't think he came alive at night. You know, he lollygagged in the morning. He just had a different, different style. So you're like, your planning was, that's really interesting to hear about how much research you did ahead of time. Because you had an attempt in 2008. It's not, I mean, you threw like this. You were extremely familiar with it. You had a solid attempt in 2014. I didn't know that you had gone that far in either of those. And on top of that, you drove the length of the trail and understood where your car would need to be. So by the time you're actually getting to the 2016 successful FKT attempt, you have essentially a list of where you're wanting to have your resupply van stops. And then you're taking it day by day to see if that seems like the best place to be. It was pretty wired. I mean, it was even the last day when I had 135 miles to go, I knew my last day would be from Deep Gap in Seattle, uh, North Carolina. It's like 85 miles in the end. The day before that, I stopped at the NLC. And that was where I finished my day there. And then I went to Deep Gap from the NLC, which was like 55 or something. I almost didn't stop. and just went the whole 135. Which Gosh. I probably would have been able to because, you know, when I did that 85 the last day, I mean, I could have kept going, you know, it was just full on autopilot. I was very, very much more prepared. I had the right crew people that got along with each other really, really well. You know, I'm sure they had a few arguments, but not many. I mean, Eric Bell is the guy in the beard with the movie. He is awesome. He makes you laugh no matter what. You just look at him and you laugh. I know. He seemed great. He's a riot. He's great. And he knows when to speak up and when not to. To me, because sometimes I go, you know, I'm a little laundry once in a while. We all do. And, uh, but he knew when to back off and stuff. It was just a great crew and it, it came together. And I really think that that was, you know, they say the crew is 80%. And I'm all for that analogy. It's like totally true that you need the right crew behind you to do it. Look at the record now, Karel Sobs 4107. He also had the great crew, but he had no issues, you know. I mean, I could have gone faster. I had that. Gave, I gave that whole day ahead of Virtual Gen back in Pennsylvania, you know? Virtual Gen. And then I was struggling after that with my shins, but... So I've seen the movie. That we're talking about the Red Bull documentary that referenced earlier. Can you, for listeners that don't have a visual, can you paint the picture of what your end-of-day setup was like, specifically where you're sleeping? So we mentioned van, we mentioned crew. You had your dad and a buddy. Your wife was, came a few times, but you had a... Essentially, like a sprinter van with a bed, right? Like, can you kind of paint that picture for what your setup was like at the end of every day? Yeah. So, the van wasn't a sprinter. It was a Ford F E350. I bought it. It was a passenger van. I bought it in Salt Lake for 13,000 bucks. It was a 2007. It had 23,000 miles on it. So, no miles on it. I took the seats out, put a bed in it. So, it wasn't a big sprinter van. It was quite a bit smaller, but there was plenty of room to sleep two people in it. That was our setup. We generally basically slept at the trailheads. Super simple. And when I came to the van each evening, my dad was there every night. There was a chair. There were bags of ice. I sat in the chair. My buddy would give me one Tylenol PM because that would help me get to sleep quicker. I took that. Dinner was already made for me. I sat in the chair. I put my feet up. I put ice on my shins. I ate my dinner. took the ice off my shins. While that was going on, my dad cleaned my feet and did any kind of foot maintenance I needed to do. 
And I went to bed within 30 minutes after being in the van every night. Very impressive. And you know that, that simple Tylenol PM, uh, it just kind of helped me knock me out. I had a fan in the van, which you know how hot it can be in the summer sleeping without uh, air movement. Yep. But I had a fan in there that's run with like a battery from a drill and recharged every day. So that kept me nice and cool to sleep. So it was very comfortable. Kept the bugs away if there was any bug issues because it blew them out of the van. Little things like that made it a lot better. And and you know, I wake up in the morning. Eric would wake up about four twenty. He'd make my coffee. I would go to the restroom, which was kind of pre-dug hole somewhere out there. Um, Somebody's digging your holes for you. That's the- well, my dad would dig the hole. My dad would do anything. He'd dig the hole. He'd, it was great because you know they, it was legit. You know, it was clean. We had a little seat to sit on, and it was all set up. You know, the night before, so I had to wake up. I kind of wandered out there. I come back, boom, the coffee. For coffee, I'd eat a little bit for breakfast. Like I, I just eat like a yogurt or a banana or something light, and then I'd start walking. Yeah, and I wouldn't eat really. I would never. I never ate a big meal, but years before, I would plan on you know make me a bigger breakfast. I want a good breakfast to get started, but that was a mistake because it took time. I really didn't to stuff yourself in the morning like that. Was just kind of a bad idea. So we had a plan to eat lighter and just kind of eat more, a little bit more later as I got into the day. That also worked out great. So those little changes we made on the last time uh, made a big difference and very simple. I mean, it only rained four days when I was out there for 45 days. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that was a question I was going to ask is over 45 days, you had to have had some nasty weather. So I mean, if you had a, even a couple of days of rain, did that impact how you approach the day? What your blister prevention setup or any kind of mm-hmm. gear? I mean, I'm thinking about myself. Any Anytime it's raining, my likelihood of skin stuff goes up significantly. And with the amount of miles you're putting in, that had to have impacted that. Yeah, I had more problems with that. My my toes were fine. Um, I never really got blisters on my toes because I had enough room in my shoes. I was was one of the original Hoka Speed Goats version one, which were not that great. I was, I'm just the truth. You know, I was cutting a hole out of my shoe, my pinky toes. So they weren't that great, but Traction was good on them, but they really weren't ideal. But I made room for them. They were a lot bigger. I had more problems in my heels, like on the sides, um, where I'd get really, really super deep blisters that you can't take. You can't just throw a needle in there and pop them out. It was more painful than anything. But, you know, I mean, I little mold skin, stuff like that. But I've never really had to like take my feet every morning or do anything like that, like I had to in 2008. 2008 was a 45 minute process. Every single morning of taping my toes. That's what I would, That's kind of what I would expect you to say. But you didn't have to deal with that this time. No, not bad. I mean, a couple things, but it, nothing was really that bad on my feet. They really held up well, and I attribute a lot of that to the early days of Maine and, and stuff, where I had a little emery board and I took care of my feet every evening right before I went to bed. I got Aquaphor on them, which is like an ointment, and I left them kind of air out and just I put little spacers between my toes to. Um, eliminate any neuroma issues because sometimes I have a neuroma issue. Those little, you know, I, my dad made out of like little foam, made like little teeth. So I'd stick them between my toes. Now would keep my toes apart yep. in the evenings. When I woke up in the morning, the neuroma just, just didn't hurt at all. You know, it was the little things that help. Yeah, I'm really gathering that your initial runs really set you up well for this. Yeah, yeah. You talked about diet. One of your claims to fame, I think, has been, or I should say, other people's claims to fame on behalf of you have been yeah. <laughs> your diet. You seem to be more of like a, a beer and pizza guy. And you know, again, you mentioned Scott Jurek. 
had the FKT the year before you. He's a vegan. I think you contrast your beer and pizza diet against other <laughs> these other guys, and it really makes you stand out. Has your running diet changed from that, or? Well, it, you know what's funny is that you know in a new an article and it was New York Times or New York something. You know, guy breaks record on on beer and candy, and that's not the truth. <laughs> I didn't drink beer the whole time. Usually, I usually actually get back to what I have when I finished. I usually had a cold beer for me when I finished. I usually drink like half of it. It really tasted good when I finished, but it wasn't like I was going to sit around and have a few beers. I drink like a half one. I maybe I'd finish it. We're demystifying Carl Meltzer's beer drinking. Yeah, well, I mean, I still like beer, <laughs> but and I love pizza. But on the trail, and, you know, as you probably know, as you know too, when you're not moving that fast, your body will digest the food. Your body will. You can funnel anything into your body when you're starving all the time. Yeah. You walk fast, you know, you jog a little. I was able to eat whatever I mostly wanted. And most of it was sweets. I ate a lot of mandarin oranges. I had a little candy. I ate a lot of, you know, I would have a little uh, pouch where Eric Bells would just, I'm like, just stuff in like, you know, eight servings. And a serving is about 120 calories. So he knew about how much to put in there. You know, sometimes I'd have some chicken tenders, you know. I had some ice cream at the half gallon challenge. Didn't finish the half gallon, but a lot of ice cream. I just wanted calories and I didn't care how they came to me. I just wanted calories. And my diet isn't really that much changed. I don't sit around and eat candy all day long and, and drink beer and pizza all the time. <laughs> but uh, I'm not like Jurek who, you know, I crewed for him for a couple of weeks. So he's vegan. Yeah. I watched him eat all the time. And it was, you know, obviously it was vegan meal, vegan stuff. He ate a lot of uh, fried, fr- he ate a lot of French fries from McDonald's. <laughs> They're in vegetable oil, so it was okay. <laughs> oh, well, I guess so that, you know? you're, you're saying you, you just wanted calories, and you know that was great. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's 45 days. Like I don't know how much damage uh, eating heavy calories with that kind of a burn rate is going to do to you. But yeah, the diet has been a a big. I finished three pounds under what I started. Oh, that's pretty darn good, man. So that's pretty damn good. Yeah, yeah, that was basically an even Steven, you know. So that was pretty impressive. Uh, like I said, they always made a good meal for me at dinner. I always had a pretty big meal, and it could have been steak. It could have been a big cheeseburger or something, something that was really dense in calories too. I wasn't nibbling, and I wasn't having a problem putting that food down. Yeah, I was like, "Give me food, woof!" You know, I'd woof it right down. And they did a great job feeding me, and that's that's all I wanted. When Scott Jurek showed up at the end, he he came in with a, like a massive cinnamon bun, you know. <laughs> Which was awesome. I mean, I was like, you, oh my Scott. God. Of course it was vegan, but I'm like, this is vegan. You're kidding me? <laughs> it's a good... When he went in in the Smokies, he went in four miles and brought in a patch like a sleep in one of the shelters. He's like, what do you want to eat? I'm like, well, we got to keep it really simple. So why don't you give me two quarter pounders at McDonald's? And I know that that's shit food. I don't go there really. Right. Early. But it was easy, right? So he And it was dense calories. I'm like, bring those things in. And I got to that shelter and I whooped those things down. And that's like, it was easy. So I went right to bed when I saw him there. Nice. It was a little things like that that made a big difference. Well, good. Glad we got some diet clarification. <laughs> Another question I really had, which I didn't, I have not heard much discussion around, was so I'm 32. I ran a marathon at 22, and I know that's nothing compared to a hundred mile race. So, I mean, let's just say I think it would be harder for me to do another marathon now, and something like an FKT on the AT seems like a young man's game. How old were you when you ran? You were late 40s, weren't you? Yeah, I was 48 when I broke the record. Yeah. Did that impact your mental game at all? Did you question that at all? No. 
I knew, I mean, obviously I know that I'm not going back at age 53. Because I mean, look at Cabela's 29, I think now, right? But I think even the way you said that you wouldn't go back at 53, I would think a lot of people would say, I wouldn't do it at 33, you know? Right. <laughs> well, I have some plans to do something maybe on the AT this year, but... Oh, baby. Not the whole thing. But it's different. I mean, you just don't have the recovery ability that a 29-year-old has or 25. Yeah. But that doesn't mean... I was averaging 3.4 miles an hour, okay? Harrell averaged about 3.7. But that's a huge difference, you know? Yeah. He's ever faster. He's going a little bit faster on trail. He's getting a little bit more sleep time. It's definitely more advantageous for a younger person to do it. But, you know, again, look how much research I did. That helped a lot. I mean, Carell, obviously, he also had no... He's no rookie, you know? He, had the, he has the PCT record. <laughs> so, you know, there was no surprise that he did what he did. I was all for it. I think it was awesome what he did. But yeah, being older... You know, Jurek was 42 or three, maybe when he did his. And, uh, you know, he's, he's failing it too a little bit now. I think I just don't recover now like I used to. I don't run as many hundreds of years as I used to. I, I just get these little nagging little injury things. Like right now, my groin's a bit of a problem. It's not a major deal, but it's something that holds you back. It holds back your training. So you're not able to be as fit as, you know, you used to be. I'm just going to try to keep hanging on as long as I can. I mean, I love racing the hundred and. I know I'm not going to win many more. If I win one more, it'd be wonderful. But it is what it is. And you've got to take it with a grain of salt and try to live your life as best you can because you may die tomorrow. Amen. Yeah. Amen, right? Well, so all right, you finished the, the Appalachian Trail. You got the fastest known time in 2016. After you finished, how long... I would imagine you were kind of in a daze. How long did it take you to feel <laughs> normal again, mentally and physically? Well, I didn't run at all for... I'm going to say three weeks. And I, what I thought was faster running, I was running with a buddy and I was like, yeah, we're moving already. He's like, well, we're really actually moving pretty slow. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Uh, it took me five to six months in 2016 to recover. In 2008, I would say it took me three to four months. Wow. We're talking months. Wow. Oh, oh, for sure. And I've been speaking with Liz Anios, who did it this year too. Another example. She's uh, in her 20s. And she's... Three, four months out from it now, and she's still not recovered, you know? Not 100%. She still has times where she's just fatigued. And it takes a while that your body is just a mess after that. I'll admit that's, I would have thought it would take a while, but months is longer than that. Yeah, no, it, it does take a while to, to sort of get back. I call it back up to speed. But I still, you know, I still, I sort of got back up to speed for what it's worth when I was 49 or 50, and I still ran some great 100 to mile times. And, but I'm getting slower now, and, and I understand that. But Nothing holding me back from doing long stuff again. It's, it's just the fact that you don't have to go that fast. You just have to like keep going <laughs> and just keep moving forward. You know, it's, I mean, I won't be chasing the AT record or PCT or anything like that anymore, which is a bummer because I sure love to do it again. But, you know, I have no regrets. And I'm, I kind of wish I would have gone after it earlier, but I never really thought about it until that conversation in 2008 with John Breeze. I, I never thought I was going to go for the AT like that. And that kind of started the whole buzz. Let's play with a thought here for a sec. How low do you think the record can go? I bet it can go under 40. But I think a better person to ask that is Carell because obviously, right? But Carell... He's 41 and, and a half. Or so, so yeah. Looking at 41 it right now. and seven hours. So 41 it's not, and seven. You know, I mean, it's only 31 hours difference. But the thing Carell said too, I didn't talk to him much, but I did speak with him, you know, through email a couple of times. And he was like, I didn't have a bad day. Your point is, is you need a bad day in order to improve. 
Yeah, well, sort of, yeah. I mean, he slept on the trail. He had people bugging stuff for him. See, I don't let people carry my, my ship. I mean, Dirk might have had a cinnamon bun carrying for me, but I wasn't, I didn't have a crew person with me carrying my water, carrying my stuff. Whatever the leg was, I carried my own ship. And I just take pride in that because that's just how I do things. I could have easily had a lighter pack every day if someone was with me, you know? And it's kind of had that most of the time. But he slept on the trail. I mean, sleeping on the trail, maximizing your full day is is the difference of 41 days and 45 days. Because I slept in the van a lot of nights where I get there kind of early at 6.30. It's still light out until, you know, 8.15 or whatever. And I still could have easily been, even if I was walking slow, I could have accrued a few more miles. And times that by 45 days, there's 150 miles. Right. And that's three days at a time. So he maximized his efficiency as a hybrid, unlike myself or Jurek or Jen or anyone else. He basically raised the bar on like, how do you do it most efficiently? Carell proved that his way is the way to do it. Interesting. I did not know yeah, that. I'd also be curious, back to your point earlier about sharing some weight, if that is something that... I think the, the rise of FKTs is a totally separate conversation. But yeah. it does seem interesting that people are seem to be pursuing these things more and more. And if it does get to a point where people are having a crew literally running with them and doing legs and carrying water and all that, just to add that extra level of efficiency. Well, that's the distance. I mean, carrying a little tenon for Corral for an extra four or five miles every day when you could have stopped. I mean, that's massive. Because when you get up in the morning out of that tent, you know, you eat a bar or something and you start walking and you're automatically on the trail. You're going already, you know, and your other guy off the tent, he either catches up to you or goes back to the whatever. Those times, I mean, granted, I was out, I was out of the van 25 minutes after I woke up every morning. But if I slept in a tent on the trail, I'd wake up and be like, oh, Hey, where's that hole, Doug? You know, <laughs> uh, take care of that. And I just like, oh, I'll start walking, you know, and you'd get moving forward. And that is totally the difference of, I mean, I bet you, I mean, this might sound crazy, but I almost think I could beat my own time if I had the right hybrid crew to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not planning on going for it, but I really do think I could so manage the efficiency better. I mean, the van was comfortable and we did a really nice job for what it's worth, but it can be way better. Very interesting. So under 40 is your answer. I think it can go under 40 though. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's we'll kinda, come along. It's kind of like happen. back in the day, they were talking about can the four-minute mile be broken? It's, it's right. kind of yeah, can, can 40 days be broken. Well, looks like you've done a lot of partnerships and sponsorships through the years. Sounds like. Do you seem to have stick out to me though the documentary with Red Bull obviously what we've been talking about you know related to the Appalachian Trail and then the shoe named after you by Hoka 11 so mm-hmm. how did each of these come about i think a lot of people would be interested to know myself included and maybe we can start with the the Red Bull you touched on a long time ago that you met up with Red Bull i'm guessing they were probably in their infancy when you were meeting them so did that help evolve into the documentary well, Red Bull was a so that documentary. So it's 2016 was the time was when I did it. It's down 2021, and that that film is Red Bull's number two most shown film of all of their films ever. Oh. The only film that Red Bull made that is that has more views is called Art in Flight, which is, I mean, the wingsuit flyers, the you know things like that. It's a totally different the human interest story. To be broken is like their 
best film. <laughs> you know, so that very cool. Yeah, when you're an athlete from Red Bull, it doesn't matter if you're a runner or a flyer or whatever you do. They are a media giant that can pump out stuff. You know, there was one video of me on Facebook when I was just it was me eating for like four minutes, <laughs> and that thing had like 13 million views in like four days. Oh, okay, that's. Now, when I saw that first come out, I didn't really know what day that was coming out. But when it first came out, I was like, holy shit, wow. It was like 1 million views. Then like two hours later, it was 3 million views. I'm like, where is this going? How is this happening? You know, they're a media giant. And that, for an athlete, has done a lot for me just alone because, I mean, it helped me with Boca. It's helped me with my other sponsors too because... It just gives you a lot of visibility, right? A lot of visibility, yeah. I mean, I'm still a sponsored athlete for Hoka. I just, in more years, I'm going through age 55. And my guy at Hoka, the athlete manager, athlete global marketing director, he almost said, geez, you know, we're going all the way. You're going to be 55 and we're still, you know, <laughs> what can I say, man? It's the demographic, you know? a boy, Carl. You know, what can I say? But Red Bull has, I mean, they definitely accelerate the media. And when I signed on to Hoka too, or for another couple of years, one of the guys at Red Bull gave me the media contacts that we had after the AT, and there were 232 people on that spreadsheet or whether it was a newspaper or an article or a film or a whatever, 232 quality, but just different outlets. Right. Here's my media to Hoka. And they're like, hey, we should probably sign this game. <laughs> <laughs> keep, probably keep this gun. So yeah, that was amazing. And then the Speed Goat shoe. So maybe uh, for some listeners, Hoka 1-1 is a shoe manufacturer. Speed Goat is a specific model of running shoe that Carl worked with. So that's what we're talking about. So I was walking around the outdoor retailer show in Salt Lake when it used to be in Salt Lake. Huge retailer show, all kinds of retailers. And I was walking around with the president of Hoka. His name's Jim Van Dyne. At the time, he's not there now, but he was at the time. And I said, Jim, wouldn't it be cool to have a shoe, you know, have a signature shoe? We'll call it the Speed Goat, you know, and, and you know, maybe I make a little money off that. Maybe we worked out some kind of collaboration deal. And he was like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Let's do it. And that conversation lasted like five minutes. And I said stuff falls in my lap, right? <laughs> well, you know, and Jim even offered me a certain number on that, like on that very day, walking around the outdoor retailer show. And then it's sort of obviously that takes time to put together a couple of years, but Jim was all for it. He loved the idea behind it. And then I stepped into my little dream world. And finally, the shoe comes out. And like I said, the number one wasn't the best, but I had some good input on it. And now, we are at Speed Goat 4. The shoe is... I mean, I see him every day when I go for a run, Chris. Like every day, whether it's locally, whether I'm in Tennessee or Vermont or wherever, I see them. And now with my name tagged onto it, I mean, I have a trademark on it and it's, it's kind of my deal. And I mean, who's got that? Michael Jordan? You got it, Carl. You know, I actually, James. I'm not Michael Jordan. <laughs> I ran with Speed Goat for last week. Yeah, I've got a. There you go. Yeah, I'm no Michael Jordan. I'm no LeBron James, but it is a true honor to have that. And every time I see someone with them, I'll say, like, nice shoes. Cause I'm just kind of looking every time I pass somebody, you know, it's just habit. And uh, I'm like, yeah, Carl, we love them. You know, or do you have a shoe? The fact that they know my name is attached to it means a lot. You know, it's not just as who's Carl Meltzer. It's attached to that name. And, you know, the whole idea of us, me coming up with that nickname back in 19, like 93, driving home from Pikes Peak with a buddy of mine. We just randomly said Speed Goat somewhere. And I was like, oh, I'm going to stick to that. <laughs> you know, here it is now, 20 years later. And it's like I have my own 
my signature shoe. The five is coming. It's not going to be out for a little while, but the five is coming. And it's, I don't know if it's the number one selling trail shoe on the market right now, but I'm telling you, I think it probably is. There might be a Solomon in there that's a pretty big seller too. And Brooks has one, but the Speedgoat is everywhere. I mean, it's, it's incredible to have that. It's, I'm glad that Hoka's really stuck with it and stuck with the program. I mean, it's, it'd be stupid not to have that shoe go forever at this point because it's, I mean, when something sells as well as it's doing, people buy, go to the store and buy five pairs because they don't want to miss out on them having them in stock. What does that mean? You got some good. Something's good. <laughs> so it's awesome. Hoka has been really, really, really great for me. And that came randomly, you know, that fell into my lap too. So I live in a dream world, Chris. I don't know what to tell you. No, that's interesting. Hearing about Red Bull and Speedgoat. That's some more info that I did not know about either of those partnerships. All right. So we could. Let's do a... We got a few personal questions and we'll wrap up with what you're working on now. But headphones. Looks like you have headphones in a lot of times. Are you rocking out to music? Are you listening to your crew? Or what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm always rocking out to music. Uh, what are you jamming on? Um, I like jam band kind of music. But I mean, anywhere from... Grateful Dead stuff? Yeah. The Dead is always a winner. But I like stuff like... I even like John Denver, you know, like, I mean, I'm from, I'm kind of, I like 80s music a lot. So you got ACDC, stuff like that from back in those days. Um, you're a lot younger. So you, ACDC is probably foreign to you a little bit, but no, no. I mean, that's, that's, I, I mean, was, they're, awesome. was, they're, they're the, I mean, they're considered classic rock. I mean, yeah, when I was a kid, that was, I was really into classic rock Zeppelin and ACDC, all that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a classic rock jam band kind of guy. And I sort of do still like, like I said, John Denver is always awesome. When I was a little kid, my dad would listen to that a lot. And I kind of, it's just kind of ingrained in my head, you know? Nice. When I'm at home listening to music, Sirius XM has like, you know, the bridge. You know, so that's like mellow rock. I like that kind of stuff. I'm not a fan of just heavy metal stuff. It's just it's too over the top. So you're, you're jam, jam banding while you're crushing, breaking records. Yeah, I don't really listen to many. I don't listen to really many podcasts or anything like that. But that's okay. You know, I just I've done a lot of podcasts, so I've heard them all. So um, interesting, jam bands. Jam bands is the way to go. And I it's fuel for the trail. And if I leave the house and forget my head, I'll pretty much drive back home and get them before I go back. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. All right, nipples taped or not taped? Oh, taped with Luco tape. Absolutely, round the corners, shave it off first. If there's anything there. Yeah, always tape them. All right. Nipple taper with Luco tape. And, and for the, the record. tape lasts for a long time. I had tape on my nips for about three weeks before I took off the first thing. Whoa. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's good. That's uh, for you. On the note of hygiene, do you still cut your own hair? Yes, absolutely. I love that. Think of the money I've saved over the years, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was great. Yeah, talking about running, uh, it sounds like you're you're still running. I think I read somewhere that you you just won a, a no business 100 in October 2020. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So even in COVID, you're still crushing it. Yeah, I mean, the COVID thing is you know that's a whole other story. But there have been races that have happened, and you know it's. I mean, I put on a race to speak of 50k. Right, we had our race too, and you know I understand if someone doesn't run, I'm not going to criticize anybody. I think it's do what you do. But for me, I'm, I'm more of a proactive person. And as long as you play by the rules and, and play it safe, it was fine. But no business 100. Um, I drove to that race from New Hampshire, or not New Hampshire, I'm sorry, from Utah to Tennessee. I drove there, so a day and a half of driving. We didn't really socialize with many people, but the race was a great full 100 mile loop and it's a great track. It was mostly single track. 
And it was an opportunity for me to win the 19th year in a row of winning at least 100 miler. So, so I went to no business and I was in, you know, reasonably good shape when I went and I had a really, uh, had a really good run. I was, my wife crewed for me, but she only saw me at four places. And I just, I was very efficient. I probably had, you know, 12 minutes of downtime total for the whole race. And I just did my thing. I mean, I know how to do it. It's uh, 100 miles is not that far. If you're focused on your mindset is that, you know, I'm never really intimidated by the distance anymore. You know, I'm going to race. I was supposed to run a race on sat- this coming Saturday, a hundred mile in Arizona, but my left groin's been bothering me. So I'm, I'm kind of out. So I'm going to have to wait for another one, but uh, I like racing. And if the opportunity's there, I'm probably going to go. Good on you. And speak of 50K, tell us a little bit about the speak of 50K. Yeah. So the first year of the speak of 50K was 2000, I think seven. This would be the 15th year coming up, 14th year, I think, or something like that. It was the brainchild of a friend of mine, Scott Mason and I. We had the idea of having a race around Snowbird and make it really hard because we had first, I was just first introduced to racing in Europe at UTMB right around that same time. And sky running was sort of the thing over there. And I said, we need to have a race, but I'm going to make it hard. I'm not going to make it just another, you know, loopy trail race with, you know, butter single track and all that stuff. I'm going to make it mentally not only physically hard, but mentally demoralizingly hard, kind of created this course at Snowbird and they were all for it. They were psyched about it. I mean, again, I worked there. So I knew the president of Snowbird. I knew all the guys, right? So it was able to put that race on. They kind of gave me the venue and they gave me a key to the resort and I said, Carl, make the race happen. And I did. And I got 112 people on the start line the first year, which was a deemed you know, definitely a success. Yeah. And now it's just, it's a bucket list race for a lot of people. A lot of locals don't run it every year because they're like, I don't want to run that damn thing again because it's so hard. But uh, it's been a really cool relationship with Snowbird with that. I've been able to bring in really you know, strong fields here. Uh, not as strong as I'd like to see maybe, but at the same time, the race world right now is very, very saturated. There's so many races. you know, So people want to do different things, and me included. I mean, I'm not going to go back to Hard Rock again, even though it's an awesome place. I've done it 13 times. What do I need to go back for? You know, Speedgoat is a, it's, if you want to run a hard, tough 50K that you're not going to set a PR at, the Speedgoat is for you, but you can expect tough and expect it to be mentally demoralizing when you, because I have places where you think you're going to go down, but kind of turn and go straight uphill somewhere. You know, when everybody swears at you at the finish line, I think that's cool. <laughs> I don't like it. All right. Very cool. Speedgoat 50K. Well, Mr. Meltzer, is there anything else you want to tell us that you're working on or doing? Any way people can contact or follow you? Well, I'm working on my laundry room uh, downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but generally right now, I just want to, you know, my goal nowadays is really to just try to stay healthy. Don't come down with some injury that's going to sidle on you for a long time. Because as I get older, it's harder to... If I'm laid up for two months or something because of whatever injury... It's going to be hard to get myself fit again. So I'm trying to just keep myself fit and trying to enjoy running ultras because it's every year I say to myself, oh, it would be kind of cool to retire and just play more golf. I do play a ton of golf. I play a Did not know that. Okay. Oh, I play a lot of golf. I played over 100 rounds last year. I volunteered PGA Tour events. I'm, I love it. You still skiing? No, I'm, I think when I'm no longer a paid athlete, I'll go back to skiing some. It's too dangerous. Well, now if I get hurt, I'm definitely done. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I love, I still love skiing, but it'll be backcountry tour skiing. It won't really be on resort because resort is just, again, it's got crowded. It's more and more people. Um, backcountry skiing and touring around 
and being safe doing that is uh, far more gratifying than, than waiting in a line to get on the tram to rip down, see how many trams you can do in a day at Snowbird like we used to. So I will ski again. It's just, it'll be more touring based type skiing, but golf is really my passion. I mean, if I, at this point, I mean, if you could say, Carl, you can just go play golf the rest of your life. I would hang my shoes up in a second. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I know it sounds crazy. I'm a, so I'm a four handicap. I'm not, by no means am I winning anything, but I play pretty well. I shoot in the seventies most of the time. And if I don't know if you play golf, but if you do, I'm pretty terrible. Well, any golfer knows how addicting it is. And I think the better you are at it, the more addicting it becomes. And uh, it's just, I I love, there's nothing better than swinging and smashing a ball 300 yards. (laughs) Not a dime when you want to, which doesn't happen very often, but no, I love it. I mean, golf is, I grew up playing golf too. When I was seven or eight, I started playing golf too. You know, that's in my blood for sure. Very cool. Well, Carl, thank you so much for hopping on, man. It's been a pleasure. No, it's always always a pleasure to be on a good podcast. And, uh, you guys know how to do it right. All right, man. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Right on, Chris. Thanks, man. All right. There you have it. Carl Speedgoat Meltzer. A big, big thanks to Carl for hopping on with us today. This is Chris Cage with Green Belly Meals signing out. Peace.